You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everyone to The 80-20 Show. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Kirk Johnson, founder of Sounds Academy, a nonprofit music education organization that teaches, mentors, and provides musical experiences and opportunities for underserved youth. In this interview, we discuss how Kirk found his love of music at an early age through attending performances at symphony halls that led him into music performance, as well as music education, developing programs all across the country. We also discuss diversity in music, providing opportunities and experiences, as well as finding resilience during the pandemic. I hope you enjoy this interview with Kirk Johnson. Hey, Kirk, how are you doing today? I'm good and great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I uh, usually start the uh, the interview the same, but um, for you especially, I want to start it in this way. How did you get started in music? I got started in music in Boston, Massachusetts. I had a music program that came to our school and they basically asked us if we want to do music and they gave us not tests, but like would ask us questions. We would do things they watched us in music class. And then I did, it was the name of the program it was called Project Step. After that, I was inserted into their programs and it, it was kind of um, rigorous, but like as a kid, you don't know. So as, as a five-year-old, you're just playing. And to me, music was just, it was just being creative. It was doing, taking, the directions that you were given and bringing it to a whole new level, at which point I got to play the violin during the summer. Then I was in the program from first grade on till I graduated in 12th grade. And it was just being around musicians. And what the mission of this nonprofit in Boston is, is to um, target students of color so that they're able to play classical music. And if you look at classical orchestras, like there aren't a lot of people of color, but it's not that we don't want to play. Sometimes we just don't even know about it. So in my case, I didn't even know about it, know that it was an option. And then once I started to know that it was an option and started to study it and started to practice and things like that, that's when it became a viable option to do as a career, a viable option to go to college and even tour. Like I started touring when I was 14. So just doing really. It. Yeah, yeah. Like Italy is my first tour that I did. And like, I still remember it to this day, like just traveling and playing music. Was that your first experience going overseas as well? No, no. My family's from Jamaica. So. Oh, really? To Jamaica every summer. Oh, wow. I was on plane since I was probably two. Who knows? Like one, two, three. That's incredible. So then, um, so how did you, as a, as a, did your parents find out about this nonprofit um, and, and then introduce you to it? Did you find out through your school? Like, how did, how did you find out about this? I found out through my school. So we're just going to school and they were there one day. Then I brought it back to my parents and they said, they want me to do this thing. And like I said, like you're young, you don't really know, it, it interests you, but you're not thinking, I want to do this program so that I can be a classical music player. No, like this looks cool and I want to try it. And then they, they let me try it. And then they made sure that I never gave up. 
So then uh, when did you know that this was going to be a career for yourself? I mean, that's an interesting question because I think I remember in, it was like third or fifth grade, I saw John Williams conduct Star Wars with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Okay, now, now I'm very jealous. Right. <laughs> now I'm very well, jealous. <laughs> the thing is, like, I was, we'll, we'll talk about Star, Star Wars later, but I wasn't a Star Wars person. I didn't know what Star Wars was, nothing, like nothing. All I knew was that when that first chord hit and then they had, after they performed it, they had the robots come out. Um, I think it's R2-D2. Mm -hmm. And I forget the other one right now. C-3PO. Yeah, C-3PO. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so not <laughs> a problem. I'll, I got you covered. All right, cool. So like they came out and I'm like, there's robots on the stage. Like, so this... It was a very different experience. So it wasn't like going to see Mozart, Beethoven. Um, it was it was just this Star Wars thing that they were doing. And I liked it. And I, the music program that I was in, they made you go to concerts. So I'd go to concerts and I'd like it. But then th that first chord, like when I heard it, and I didn't, in my brain, what was happening was that there is an orchestra that is their sole purpose is to record music for movies. In my brain, I then said, I want to be in an orchestra to do that and to make music for cartoons. So to me, that was the career. Like, I'm a kid. Like, I'm third, fifth grade. So in my brain, I wasn't thinking I want to be a professional musician. I was thinking I want to make music for cartoons and for movies. And that's when I just kept on going. But then that turned into... I think through going on the tours and seeing what other countries look like for music education and you get to visit schools and you get to visit museums and all that stuff, it became, I wanna do more of that. Like I wanna teach more students how to do what I'm doing because I'm looking left to right and realizing that there are only 50 kids in this program. I'm realizing that in my orchestra, there's three or four black kids in this orchestra. And that's a high number. Like if you have three, if you go to any concert and you see more than three or four um, players of color, that's a high number. Yeah. So um, like now when I'm playing, I'm the only one. And, I, and, and that's what it is. Wow. So then... Then moving forward, then, you know, knowing that you want to be in music education, um, I guess uh, the next question would be, when when did you move out to Arizona? Was it because you were looking for opportunities out there? Did you move out with your family? What, what brought you out to Arizona? I came to Arizona because of Teach for America. And there was, a, at the time, the director, her name was Andrea. She was, recruit, she, she was recruiting people to come to Arizona. I had no interest in coming to Arizona. Like Arizona, I remember Arizona was this red dot on the map every time the weather report came out. Like that's what I remember about Arizona and everyone talking about how hot it is and you know, things like that. And so then I went through some things with Teach for America and like their process and I passed and all that stuff. And they allowed me, my first choice was Atlanta. 
So I wanted to go to Atlanta, but Atlanta wouldn't let me teach music. So I knew I was going to teach music regardless. With or without Teach for America, I was going to teach music. Andrea said, you can come to Arizona and teach music. I visited Arizona and it was February. And then I remember, and it was the week of the Super Bowl. And we flew back on that Sunday to Indiana. So I came to visit Arizona, flying back. And in Chicago, the, the connection flight was through Chicago. And the we had to walk off the plane, like the runway wasn't working. The runway is probably frozen or something like that. So we had to go down the stairs of the airplane. And I, re, I still remember that air that chicago airport air hitting my lungs and just going yeah man let's go to let's go to phoenix like they don't have this. <laughs> <laughs> and and i remember my first i came to phoenix in maybe may or june it's, it's june it's probably june and i remember i had some shoes in my car and they melted they melted that's a new one i've never i've, I've been here for over 20 well, years and so that's a that's a new one like something on the shoe melted, like something on the shoe melted. And it made me go, all right, just don't leave those in your car anymore. Like you can't leave things in your car. I didn't have tent. I didn't have a visor. I wasn't, I wasn't Phoenix prepared. Like I was, I was Midwest prepared. I was East coast prepared and such, but like, I I knew that it was going to be hot, but then after surviving that first summer, I'd rather have those three months of summer than, those six months of cold weather. Same. I, I was born and raised on Long Island. So same thing. I was a you know a East Coaster. So when I moved out to uh, to Phoenix, I felt the exact same way. I'd rather deal with two, two, three months of of heat than dealing with those six to eight months of just bitter coldness. So right. for me, there's, there's just no question, right. personally. <laughs> so yeah, so Phoenix has become my home and I like it. And um, it's a great so was this also around the same time that you got? Um, so now you're you're teaching music in Arizona. Was this also the same time that uh, you joined uh, Symphony of the Southwest? No. So when I came to Phoenix, the first time I think that was about 2007. Okay. Wow. So you've been here for for quite some time. Yeah. Well, I left and then I came back. Okay. So Interesting. I I was is Phoenix 2007, and I did Teach for America. 2007 teaching in South Phoenix. Then I I said I would only leave if I got my dream job. My dream job was going to be conducting youth orchestras. So I got a job to conduct youth orchestras in Houston, Texas. Oh wow. To Houston to do that and work with schools out there. And then I came, you know, Facebook keeps you connected, right? So there are some students, some teachers and stuff, and I was learning about the pay freezes. And I've always developed music programs. So like even when I was in Indiana, I developed a music program. When I came to Phoenix the first time, I developed a music program. I developed it in the school system. And when I went to Texas, I was developing a music program out there. And then I learned about the pay freezes and the pay cuts and they're getting rid of the music program that I had created in the school. And I didn't like that. So I felt like I did something wrong in how I did that because the one in Indiana was still going. The one in Arizona stopped. And it was like, why, why did that one stop if I built it 
bigger. Like in my mind, I built it bigger. The one in Indiana was like a parent committee that runs it. The one in Arizona was a school that was in charge of it. So then I came back to Arizona in 2013 um, to do Sounds Academy and make it its own. So I was building it the way I built it in Indiana um, as a nonprofit organization. And then instead of having, I just, instead of having a parent led board, it was more of a professionally led board. Interesting. So what, um, so you came back to Arizona because you really wanted to then take it on your own reins, what you were trying to, to build in the state um, that kind of faltered a little bit in comparison to, to Houston where you were dealing with pay freezes and all, all, and all those things. That's what, Oh no! Sorry, the, pay freeze, the pay freeze are in Arizona. Oh, the pay freeze was in Arizona. Yeah. So like Houston, wow. Houston was, there's no pay freeze in, in Texas. Like things are going fine in Texas, but like, I felt like, why isn't this program that I did in Arizona doing well? And this program that I built in Texas, it's going to do fine. And it's still doing fine. Right. So then, so I, I merged that with another program out there. Um, that's still doing great things for those students. And it just felt like if I didn't do the program, then who would? So I didn't know of a lot of programs that was doing what I was trying to do specifically. And in, and even what I was trying to do grew and changed because of talking to parents and talking to schools. So when I first did Sounds Academy, I was doing it for one-on-one -on -one students. But then I started to realize that there are schools that don't and districts that don't have music education. There are pockets of Phoenix that if you go to and a, like you bring a student to a field trip at um, Crescent Ballroom or to um, Symphony Hall, or like even when you and I did the thing with um, the McDowell Mountain Music Festival, if we, if we bring these kids from South Phoenix, from West Phoenix, right? And they look at that stage and they say, that's what I want to do. When they go back home, there is no place for them to go and do it. They'd have to come back to downtown Phoenix to do it, at which point parents are like, I don't even have transportation to bring you back every week. I don't have the funds to bring you back every week. So then it became, all right, then why don't we send teachers out there? Why don't we start to build things out there? And out there, like I, I say out there, but out there is 20, 30 minutes away. Like, it's not like we're talking about getting on a plane or it's not like we're talking about hours of travel. We're just talking about 20, 30 minutes. So that's like with the vision of Sounds Academy, it's what is your excuse, reason, problem, barrier, whatever you want to call it. Like, what? why is it? that this student cannot play music. So if it's financial, all right, let's give them a scholarship. If it's transportation, all right, let's move the music program closer to them. Like if it like, cause it's not desire. So it's not that, it's not want, it's not dreams, it's not that. So like when you talk to these children, like that's what they want to do. However, circumstances have led them to not be able to do it which they didn't choose. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I was very, very lucky because 
when I grew up, I had access to instruments and uh, I ended up being a trumpet player. I, I first took a uh, private piano lesson. So piano was the first instrument I played. And then obviously can't, uh, I like to joke, you can't take piano with you to grade school. So when it yeah. came time to pick an instrument, uh, my parents actually uh, met in middle school in band, in the band program. And cool. my mother played the clarinet and my father played the trumpet. So they gave me, they still had their original instruments that they had since kids. And so they let me try both of them out. And I ended up uh, gravitating towards the trumpet. And uh, so that was the instrument that I played. But I was surrounded by a family that were all very much into music. In fact, my aunt and uncle used to be music teachers as well, both band, band teachers. So music education was a part of my life at a very, very early age, both with private lessons as well as uh, family members being in band te- uh, band teachers. I, when I started playing the trumpet, my band teacher also was giving me private uh, trumpet lessons. So I've always had that in my life. And I always make sure that I'm very grateful for that fact because I know that so many uh, you know kids out there, they don't have that kind of access. They don't have the ability to do those things. And that's why it's amazing to have an organization like like you, um, where literally you're basically giving no excuse for, for anyone to be able to pick up an instrument and learn. Right. Right. So, um, it's very interesting about how you are developing these music programs and then learning as you go. So within Arizona itself, um, what other lessons have you learned from your, from building these music programs in different States that you apply to, uh, sounds Academy? What other lessons have you learned that you know, that you did things differently? Um, I, I think Arizona's different in, in that space. So for example, when I did the one in Indiana, the, the school, so the Indiana University School of Music, Jacob School of Music now, was, is like this focal point of arts, right? So people, come from the big city to come to Bloomington to see all these concerts. And so we have people like Joshua Bell coming to Bloomington to perform because Joshua Bell studied at Indiana University. When I did it in Texas, same type of thing. It was the Houston, where we were in Houston, we had, something high school of the performing arts. I forget what it is right now, but it's a very famous high school where all these artists are coming out of. And that's the area that we're in. Like Beyonce graduated from that high school. Oh, wow. In Phoenix, I had to find it more. So I had to find where are those inspirational stories? Where are those places that I can connect our students to? Who are those people that I can connect our students to? To motivate them because I think a big thing is if you can see it, you can be it. Therefore, if students see, and that goes beyond just if I see a musician, I can be a musician. If I see a musician that came from my neighborhood, that that's a stronger connection, that's a stronger motivator. If I see a musician that looks like me, that's a stronger connector, that's a stronger motivator. So therefore, I'm always looking for those musicians that are coming out of the neighborhood that are that we serve, um, that look like the students that we serve, 
that diversify. And then we also, you know, we break barriers. Like we diversify other stages, the places where you won't necessarily, like when, when I say nothing, when I talk about like breaking barriers too, like I'm going beyond racial. So for example, I remember when I was in Phoenix the first time and I told students that we were gonna go to Symphony Hall and they said, fancy people go to Fit Symphony Hall, right? So, and so in their, in their mind, I'm not fancy. I don't get to go to Symphony Hall. And I'm like, nah, we're going to Symphony Hall. So then like, I took that to say, so one of the lessons that I learned, and a lot of this too is you figure this stuff out, right? Like no one tells you this, but you figure this stuff out. And something that I've started to figure out is when I was younger, I would go to Symphony Hall, Boston Symphony Hall, all the time. I would go to Boston Symphony Hall to the point that I would go to the back door that the musicians went through. And I knew the security guards, like that's where our rehearsals were sometimes. My teacher played for the symphony, Boston Symphony Orchestra. So if he told me to meet him at Symphony Hall, I'd have to go to Symphony Hall. When you talk to a lot of musicians, there's some story about them going to some concert venue or them having this connection to some musician that it was almost like, it was like the secret pathway. So it was like, I get to go through the back door. I get to study with this musician. I was on the stage with this musician, you know, things like that, that helped to motivate them. So when I design, we have this series called the masterclass where our students play for members of the Phoenix Symphony. And I requested that the students get to go through the back door where the musicians go through and they sign in like a musician does. Because I think that going into their adult years, that sticks with them. So there's sometimes you'll talk to kids and you'll say, remember when we went to McDowell Mountain Music Festival and you guys met Michael? They're like, no. 80-20 records? No. Do you remember when we went to the music festival? Oh yeah, and nobody else was there. And we got to be there. And we saw the pizza dancing. Like that's what they re they remember that I got this exclusive experiment or sorry experience. So they're not remembering the names. They're not remembering the organizations. They probably don't even remember that it's called McDonald Mountain Music Festival, but they remember that I got to do this exclusive thing that everyone doesn't get to do. And because of that, I am important. And because I am important, I'm going to try harder. And you know, like all these things just develop into your brain to give you motivation. And like, even when you were talking about like both of your parents played, right? That, that is such a powerful thing because people that play know the struggle of playing an instrument. And we know that everything doesn't always sound good. We know that there's perseverance. We know that there's time where you're trying to do this thing and it's not working the way you're trying to do it. So then you change the mouthpiece and you clean out the trumpet and you just, you're just trying, it's not working, but like you have somebody in your corner that's like, you sound good, keep going, right? As opposed to people that haven't played the trumpet and if you skip a note or something, there's like, oh, that's awful. That plays into your psyche, as, especially as a child, that plays into your psyche. So we create this environment where there's resilience in it. Like, yeah, you're gonna mess up, get back up and let's keep going. What's also great about it too is that you find other like-minded individuals, and especially as a kid, a lot of 
my friendships were built off of uh, being in, in the band program. So especially moving out to Arizona, because I moved out. I mean, I, I was at that point, I was a teenager. I was about 14, 15 years old when I moved out to Arizona. But when my, when my family moved out here, we didn't know anybody. We didn't have other family members here, no friends, no nothing. We knew nobody. And uh, I really connected with the band teachers well, because again, that was something that I felt comfortable with because you know having such uh close relationships with my band teachers as well as my family i understood that so in fact when we went to the high school that was we actually got a meeting with the band teacher so i can meet with the band teacher directly and talk about my experience and so this way she can also figure out where to place me in the band program but also i felt comfortable with her because it was something that was familiar to me and the very first experience I had with, um, you know, you know, people my age in Arizona was band camp. Yeah. And, you know, that was because obviously that was right before school start even started. So that was my first experience in making these bonds with all these other, you know, with all these other kids, you know, students, my fellow classmates in high school was through was through that band camp program and you know a lot of those friendships that i've built since then i still t- talk to them to this day because you find that that uh, sense of camaraderie around music you're all there for the same reasons and and for the same passions and you find other passions from it as well so it, it i find that again i i totally agree with you that you know even at an early age when you have these exclusive or very unique experiences and get to see behind the scenes of how things work, you find you get a special connection to it because Mm -hmm. it no longer seems unattainable. I think is a a big part of it. It No longer seems like it's an impossible feat. You are there. You are, you are like you said, say gang signed in, in the back entrance with the other musicians. You feel like you are part of that group now. And that is something that is no longer something that is just for fancy people or, you know, or the, you know, the, the cream of the cream of the crop of musicians. That's something that you can also be as well. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, Sounds Academy now has been going on for almost eight years now, eight, nine years. Yeah. Yes. We're in our seventh year right now. Wow. Nine, seven year. That's amazing. So out of the uh, uh, seven years, and I mean, also to building these other music programs, um, what are some other um, fundamental, I, I, I would say, lessons that you've learned watching your students essentially grow? Because some of them now that have been starting in your program, you know, are you know probably in their 20s, 30s at this point and have their own careers. So um, do you have any examples of uh, some success stories that um, for any students that come through your programs? I mean, when I think about the success stories, I kind of think about the students being exposed to opportunities outside of their neighborhood and which helps to expand their dreams. And when I, when I think of that, I think of, we have students who they didn't think college was an option and they didn't think college was an option because affordability you know, like, how do you get there? Am I smart enough? You know, things like that. At which point we send students to, NAU has a summer camp, um, current music summer camp, where we're able to expose them to living on a college campus for two weeks. They learn 
about the classes, the professors, playing in an ensemble, things like that. And now they're part of that experience. We talk about scholarships, we talk about how to apply, we talk about their grades. Um, and so some of them don't know, some of them, they want to go to college and they want to do, we had a student that wanted to be a conductor and she was female. And the reason why that's so significant is there's not a lot of female conductors, right? So she goes on, she is now at Oberlin for grad school. She graduated from ASU last year, 2020. So now she's at Oberlin, no, no. Bowling Green, sorry, she's at Bowling Green in Ohio um, doing a conducting degree. And she did, she was in Prague about three years ago, like kind of doing a fellowship to be conducting. So it's like we set up though, and before that, she when she was in Sounds Academy, she did same similar to what NAU does, but she did it hers at Ithaca, New York. So we flew her out to Ithaca, she got to experience what it was going to be like, took a couple of conducting classes. And ironically, the person who was a conducting professor at Bowling Green, she met in oh, high wow. school at Ithaca. Wow. Right? So like that, the we're not old enough yet to, to complete all of our stories, but we're old enough to see that the stories are going in the right direction, if that makes sense. Makes perfect um, sense. And then we have students that have graduated as well. So this is more like a full story one where we have a student who is now um, received a job teaching in the Tempe public schools and doing, and before that she was doing social work type stuff. So it's like, she's seeing the less, there's a lot of lessons you get from music. And then you get to, as an adult, we take the lessons that we learn and we teach them to others. So you're seeing her as a young woman taking those lessons that she learned and imparting them to others. And I'm just excited for her future as an educator. So going from social work to educator um, in order to help kids. So, and I, and I mentioned that one too, to say like, it's not like we're trying to make all these musicians. Like most of our graduate graduates do not go on to do music education or music performance. So we have students that do psychology. We have students, right now we have a freshman at ASU that's doing business analytics. So like what, what we're teaching is the character value behind that. So we're teaching the creativity, the leadership, the perseverance, the resilience, the teamwork. And I think that those are five character values that you will need in any occupation. You will need in any sphere of life, whatever you're trying to do. And I think that 2020 now rolling into 2021, like perseverance and resilience is kicking in like no other. We need each other. So there goes that teamwork. Um, we've had to figure out. So right now we're doing an interview through Zoom. Like we weren't doing things like that a lot before. And like we'd be in a studio, we'd, but we had to get creative. Like how are we gonna make this thing keep going or are we just gonna stop? Right, exactly. And it, and it takes real leadership to even step outside that box and say, all right, let's do it this way. Let's try it this way. It might work. It might not work, but at least we tried it. And speaking of which too, you, I know that with Sounds Academy, because you normally would have these experiences um, that you would provide to these kids, but obviously since they, those are not available right now because everything is shut down. Um, and also 
providing opportunities for your students to perform. I know that the organization has shifted quite a bit and providing a lot of uh, opportunities for performing online. Yeah. So everything we're doing is virtual now. Um, we do um, these tiny performances. So with the tiny performances, students have two options. But with the tiny performances, those, those are cool because what we're doing is we're finding concert halls in Phoenix, we're finding places of performances in Phoenix, and we're having our students play on those stages without an audience, but it's them on the stage playing. So now what that does is that gets them out the house, it gives them a project to work on. They're practicing to get this right. They take a couple of takes, we take the best take out of what they do, we have it professionally recorded. So that's one option that they have. And then the other one we have is they can just, if they don't feel comfortable leaving the house, they can just record it at home. So they record it at home and we, so we have the tiny performances, home editions. We have the tiny performances at different concert venues. And now more recently, we're having the tiny performances, young composers edition. So we have a class now. So this is us getting creative. Zoom is not designed for musicians and Zoom is not designed for groups to do something at the same time. And I think that something I tell people is like, whenever they go, why can't you just do rehearsals through Zoom? I go, I want you to do the Pledge of Allegiance at your next group meeting through Zoom. It doesn't work. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't work. All these delays, all these, oh, what, what? I can't hear, huh? Like, so. <laughs> It's so funny because when when, when you, we we do the Zoom calls for family for for birthdays, we try to do happy birthday, and I and I always cringe every single time because the delays just just makes it so cringeworthy. <laughs> right. So so imagine that now with instruments. Yeah, it's, it's possible. If, it's impossible. The wrong note, you know, stuff like that. So what we did was we said, all right, you guys, instead of me telling you how to play something the right way, you guys are gonna write it and tell us how to play it. So these kids are writing music and then they're performing the music. And so that's where the Young Composers edition comes from. Um, looking to have a listening party in May sometime with that, with their, they get to pick what they think their top composition is or their top pieces. And they're gonna say, you know, this is why I wrote it. This is the motivation behind it. And then they're gonna play it. So that's gonna kind of be our listening party, so to speak. And we're just gonna play a couple of videos with that um, as well. So yeah, so like, Point being, like, we're thinking outside the box, too, and doing what we need to do to keep these things going. That's fantastic. And and composition, too, is a, is a different type of skill set. And what's great about that is it opens all kinds of other possibilities for them, where even if, you know, they're looking into music performance or music education, comp composition is a whole nother aspect of music. And you know, sometimes I feel like that sometimes gets the back burner unless you are actively looking to 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 write music in some form or fashion and go to music theory. Sometimes, you know, performance supersedes over over that. And I feel that composition is just as important um, as, as performance because you can't perform if you don't have any music to, to perform to, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that, that's amazing. And that's a great way to, again, like you said, to think outside the box is that you know, instead of having a number of students trying to rehearse together online, which is extremely difficult, if not possible to do, is finding other aspects of music, as you mentioned, with compositions. So that's fantastic. 
Yeah. And they're learning music theory too. And like, that's one of the cool things about it. Cause there's a lot of, if you're going to write music, you have to start to learn things. And they're taking those things that they're learning and bringing those into their lessons because sometimes they don't notice key signatures. Sometimes they don't notice half note quarter notes, but now they're noticing all these things because they themselves are creating it. Absolutely. I know for myself, I really didn't, I, I've always been a visual person. So uh, sheet music always came natural to me, but it became another experience entirely when I started taking music theory classes and actually understanding the note structures and, and chord progressions and why things work that they wait the way that they do. And that be, made me a better performer because of those different things. So absolutely. I think that's a a great way. Do you find that um, for your students, do they generally stick with one instrument through your program or do they try uh, different instruments out? Some try different instruments. So yeah, like it's, it's a good mixture of when it comes to that. So some students, cause we have instrument petting zoos. So when we have the instrument petting zoos, they get to try the instruments and decide which one do they like in the first place. And so that's really so cool. The part, they, what they choose is kind of like their first love. That's interesting. And mo it's mostly uh, string instruments, correct? Or do you have other instruments as well that you let them try? Yeah, yeah. We're, we've expanded. We have string instruments, uh, piano, guitar. We're doing woodwinds now. So brass and vocal are the, and percussion are the last three to add in there. And do you find that uh, most of your students these days are still gravitating towards uh, string instruments, or or are they you're finding now a good mix, you know, a mixture between like woodwinds and guitar and things like? Because obviously, guitar is a very popular instrument. So, do you find more of them resonating with the guitar, or do you finding that it's still relatively balanced amongst the different uh, instrument groups? I mean, it's relatively balanced, but also I keep in mind when did it start? So, like right now, our what did we start with? We started with strings. We have the most amount of string players. What did we add next? Piano. We have the second most amount of piano players. And so woodwinds, we just started this year. So we have the least amount of woodwind players. So I think it's just a matter of how long has it been around? And then what can we, how many people do we have to teach it? And what can we provide? What can we support? What, what are the resources that we have to make it possible? So for any... So for anybody, and in this case, it doesn't even matter uh, what age. So if anybody is listening right now, um, if you are, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 10, 12 years old or in your 30s or 40s, for anybody that is looking to pursue pursue a career in music, whether it's um, performance, composition, or uh, even as a music educator, uh, what would you what would your advice be to for anybody that's uh, that's interested in doing in pursuing that goal as a career? Uh, try it and stick with it and then be flexible know that there's going to be good days bad days um it's not it, it was it's one of those things where i know warren buffett talks a lot about when he talks about stock market and getting rich and stuff like that he talks about a lot of people don't have patience so i think the same can be said with musicians that sometimes musicians don't have patience and then they also one of my other friends, uh, who's a very successful saxophone player, um, whose name is also Mike, Mike Burton. He, I remember one of the things he told me was be nice and be on time. All right. So that's something that I tell our students all the time that it, like, if 
if you're a nice person and people want to work with you, they'll almost make excuses for you. But then if you're not late, if you get to rehearsals on time, like I know people that work with Beyonce's, um, Timberlake's, you know, stuff like that. You, you gotta be at the rehearsal on time. Like you, it is such a bit, there's no excuses because if you got stuck in traffic, there's 17 other guitar players that will make sure that they will never get stuck in traffic in order to get to, for the opportunity to play at the Grammys. No, I'm not, I'm gonna camp out at the venue the night before to make sure I'm not late. So yeah, so be nice, be on time. Words to live by, let me tell you, I mean, even as a representation, I will I will work any day with somebody who is less talented if that means that I know I can rely on that person and they're going to be kind and professional um, to others around. That is is so extremely valuable. And everyone who's listening right now knows I talk about this a lot. Almost every episode we talk about these exact same things about being nice and being patient and being, you know, being reliable, being on time. And yeah. I mean, that's if you want to get anywhere in general, I mean, just in general alone, but especially in the music industry, whether it, it is uh, as a musician, a, a performing musician or a performing artist, or whether it is as a composer or, you know, again, as a representative um, where you're trying to start your own record label or management or anything along those lines, if you are, are not reliable and believe me, I've, I've, I can tell. We can talk about stories all day long about musicians that are unreliable. And if you are unreliable and you are not coming in time, or you know your ego is getting in your way, or you're not being nice, or anything along those lines, believe me, that is no question going to be your hindrance in moving forward. And if you are doing those things, believe me, that is the reason why you're getting more and more opportunities moving ahead because. Word gets around and people will talk about how you are and how and my my, you know, our the credibility of 8020 records is based upon our reliability. That is what we're known for. And I'm proud of for that fact is that people know that if they're working with us is that we will we are reliable. We will make sure that we do what we say that we're going to accomplish. And that and that means a lot is building that trust factor. And it's it's all about trust. It really is. You mm -hmm. need people that you can that you can trust that's going to support you. And like you said, whether you know whether it's you know playing at the Grammys for Beyonce or even performing in a symphony, if you can't make it on time for rehearsals, you're you're holding everybody else back. Right. And everyone needs to count on each other. Right. Yep. So, well, thank you so much, Kirk. I really do appreciate it. I know we kind of went on a on a uh, rant tangent there, um, but uh, I do really appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, no problem. And thank you once again for having me as your guest. My absolute pleasure.